let me invite you to grab your Bibles now and turn them open to Genesis chapter 3, to the passage our friend John just read for us a moment ago. Genesis chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, know that there's some provided in the pews in front of you to grab and use. If you do not own a Bible, we've just got a new batch in uh, in the foyer on the table. Grab one of those on your way out. Let it be our gift to you so that you might have a copy of the scriptures to read and reflect upon and to encounter Christ in and through over the course of your regular rhythms and your regular days. Well, on August 6th, 6th 1945, that's when a uh, during World War II, an American B-29 bomber uh, dropped the world's first atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. And the explosion was so intense as no weapon like that had ever been built nor used before that moment. And the explosion wiped out 90% of the city upon impact. About 80,000 people lost their lives in an instant. Now, words cannot adequately express the tragedy of that moment. And as we consider history and we think about that moment, our hearts should be grieved by all that transpired leading up to that moment and, all, and a lot that has flowed from that moment. Our hearts should grieve over that dynamic. It was an intense, tragic day. But the tragedy didn't end in that moment. It didn't end the moment the bomb dropped, obviously. In the days following the bombing of Hiroshima, tens of thousands of more people would lose their lives due to radiation exposure, due to what's called nuclear fallout. In other words, when you use an atomic bomb, it, the impact of it lasts a while because not only does it hurt upon impact, it, it causes some radioactive particles to be kicked up into the atmosphere surrounding the region. And over time, those radioactive particles begin to fall from the atmosphere, taking on the form of dust. And as it does so, it spoils everything. Spoils everything. And I share that image to you right off the bat tonight because we're stepping into Genesis chapter 3. And what's going down in this chapter... Essentially, this text deals with the fallout of sin, so to speak. Last week, when we looked at the temptation and the fall, a bomb was dropped, basically. A bomb was dropped, but the, the repercussions of that moment have carried forward into the future. There's a fallout from the fall that you and I need to be aware of. That things happened in Genesis chapter 3 that affects the human heart, spoiling everything in the world. It was a bad moment in Genesis chapter 3. It was a tragic occurrence in Genesis chapter 3. A guy by the name of Michael Shermer publishes a magazine called Skeptic. And he's also the author of a book called The Science of Good and Evil. And and one time he was interviewing a guy named Thomas Keneally, if you've heard that name. He's the author of Schindler's List. And he sat down with Keneally to talk to him about the characters in his story. And he said, hey, can you tell me the difference between Oscar Schindler, the rescuer of the Jews and the hero of his story, and Amon Goth, the, the Nazi commander who ran the concentration camp that plays a role in the story? And his answer actually surprised uh, Shermer. This is how he responded to that question. When asked, what's the difference between these two guys, one who perpetrated acts of violence, who dropped bombs on people, so to speak, and the other who sought to rescue and deliver those from concentration camps, what is the difference between them? And here's what he said. He says, well, not much. He said, had there been no war, Mr. Schindler and Mr. Goth might have been drinking buddies and business partners. Morally obtuse, perhaps, but relatively harmless. Harmless, He said, what a difference a war makes, especially in the moral choices that lead to good and evil. You know, I know we, we want to think about these types of dramatic moments, these egregious acts of evil and, and tragedy in the world. And, and there's a temptation in all of our hearts to want to distance ourselves from those who perpetrate those types of things and, and commit those types of acts of violence. And so we want to kind of divide the world neatly up into the good guys and the bad guys between those who wear a white hat, those who wear a black hat. And usually it's an us versus them, that, that we are the good guys and they on the other side are the bad guys. And we want to see the world in that type of simplistic way. But what a difference a war makes. What a difference a war makes, especially to the moral choices that lead to good and evil. 
Shermer would go on in that article to quote a Russian philosopher and listen to what he says. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil, the line dividing good and evil cuts right through the heart of every human being. In Genesis chapter 3, we're going to explore the fallout of sin and the effects it has on the human heart, spoiling everything. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 21, describes the fallout of sin, so to speak. That which now affects the way the world is, the way that it is as a result of the temptation and the sin committed earlier in this chapter. And when we talk about the fallout of sin that's being described and the rhythms that are explained in this text, there are basically two words that summarize it. One word is alienation. You're going to see an emphasis on alienation as a result of the fallout of sin. But then another word you're going to hear described in this passage is is animosity. There's a relationship between alienation and animosity, both of which uh, comprise the fallout of sin as it's described in Genesis chapter 3. So let's think first about alienation. When you look at this passage and you kind of walk through it, it becomes clear that the fallout of sin results in a pervasive alienation, a pervasive alienation. And and I know that might be some strange language when pervasive, why would you use a word like that? But that word is very, very important. If you've ever baked, you know what pervasive means. If you've ever dropped some yeast in a batch of dough, you know what pervasive means. You put a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough and it, and it affects and it influences the whole batch. It, it impacts every aspect of what's going to go down or what's going to go into the oven and come out of the oven. It's pervasive in its influence. Well, when you look at sin as, as a result of the, the fallout, you're going to see sin having a pervasive effect on everything. And the effect it has takes initially this form of alienation. You notice first in verse 8 that we are, as a result of sin, alienated from God. This is part of the fallout of, the, of, of sin in the world. We are alienated from our God. You notice this in verse 8. He says, And they, referring to Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that word, walking, that, that's a Hebrew idiom for fellowship, for intimacy, for enjoyment. And the language behind that verse suggests that this was a regular rhythm that the Lord God was living in. That around this time of day, every day, he would come walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we're presumed to believe that every day, it seems, Adam and Eve would have joined him on that walk. They would have fellowshiped with him. They would have interacted with him. They would have enjoyed friendship with their God. But notice what happens as a result of the fallout of sin. When they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they do not run out to meet him. They don't press into intimacy and fellowship with God. Instead, they're afraid. They're ashamed. They feel guilty. And so what do they do? They hide behind some trees. They are alienated from their God as a result of sin in their lives. And then when you get to the end of Genesis chapter 3, what happens? God exiles mankind from the Garden of Eden. Alienation being the emphasis there as a result of sin. So in sin, we are alienated from God. We do not fellowship with Him naturally. We do not walk with Him willingly. Instead, we we are separated from Him and we hide in a myriad of ways. But not only do you see here alienation from God, as you continue the situation, you again, it's a pervasive alienation. We're not only alienated from our God, there's a sense in which we are alienated from ourselves as well. That as a result of sin, we are no longer living out our true selves. We're no longer living out our true identity. What happens as a result of sin is we become alienated from ourselves. You'll see this earlier in verse 7. If you jump up in verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, Then the eyes of both, referring to Adam and Eve, were opened. And look what went down. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. And that word naked is another idiom for shame. It's a Hebrew idiom for something not being right. Their lives are now characterized by shame. Their eyes are opened. They know they're naked. They are ashamed of themselves and what just went down. And so there's alienation that happens from ourselves as they are now characterized by this shame in their lives, this feeling of distress as a result of their deficiencies, their inadequacies, their insecurities, their poor decision. They they are alienated from 
themselves. Notice immediately what after, right after it says they were naked, it said they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They're trying to cover themselves up. They're trying to right that which went wrong. That, that sense of shame deep within them isn't a good feeling. And we all know this too well, and it's unique to the human condition. This is why Mark Twain would say that human beings are the only animals who blush. We're the only creatures in God's created order who blush, who, get, who are ashamed of, of things about us and things in our lives and things that we do. Why is that? It's because we're alienated from ourselves. Johnny Depp, uh, many of you I'm sure have heard of Johnny Depp. You know him and his acting role. His, he's a guy who loves to play eccentric roles. And a lot of the roles that he takes on are roles that allow him to get painted up and to wear costumes and makeup. This is why he liked Edward Scissorhands back in the day. This is why he likes the character of Jack Sparrow uh, in the Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know how many there are now, five, I guess. This is why he took on that role in Lone Ranger, which was terrible. Uh, and he, he just likes painting himself and dressing up in these costumes. And, and what's interesting, he was interviewed one day by Rolling Stone, and he explained why he liked and he preferred makeup and costumes to actually looking at himself in a mirror. This is what he says. He says, covering myself up in makeup is a lot easier than looking at my own face in the mirror. He said, I think for everyone, you wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you're like, ugh, that idiot again? That idiot again? You're still here? What do you want? And he would go on to say, hiding. Hiding, I think, is most important. It's important for whatever's left of your sanity in this world. What's he describing in that moment? But the fact that he, in his fallen condition, is alienated from himself. He doesn't like to look at himself in the mirror, so he, likes to, he prefers to hide behind makeup and characters and costumes. And the reality is, each and every one of us do this in various ways all the course of our days. We are alienated from our true selves. We are not who God originally created us to be. We sense something is wrong. Shame, fear, guilt mark us, and we sense that they shouldn't mark us. And so we're alienated from ourselves. But then you go on and you consider more the pervasive effects of our alienation. Not only are we alienated from God and from ourselves, we are alienated from each other. If you notice again, back in verse 7, Right after they realized they were naked, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They weren't just hiding from themselves, they were hiding from each other in that moment. And what's curious about it is that they did this before the Lord God ever walked towards them in verse 8. They're already covering up because there's an alienation they feel about their relationship with each other. When you jump back to chapter 2 verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were safe and secure in that covenantal relationship of marriage. They were enjoying God and enjoying one another. Absolutely vulnerable, absolutely secure. But what's the fallout of sin? The fallout of sin flips the script on that condition so that now they're alienated from one another. They don't trust each other. They don't like being that vulnerable and that open with each other. So they're covering up. The safety and security that they enjoyed in verse 25 is now gone. They're alienated in their relationships. And the reality is all of us kind of know this very well in our interpersonal relationships in this world. We live our lives with a sense of a feeling alienated from our fellow human beings, feeling alienated from those around us. This is why we're not all that vulnerable with each other. This is why we are afraid to really open up and let people see what we're really like. This is why we don't really share our deepest thoughts with those around us because we don't feel safe enough to do so. That safety and that security has been compromised as a result of sin. It has twisted our relationships. And so what happens now when we step into a relationship with another human being, we do so in a transactional fashion. We say, okay, I'm going to jump into my, a relationship with you as long as I can get from you what I want from you. I'll be with you as long as you make me feel good about myself. But the moment you no longer make me feel good about myself and, and I can stay kind of hidden in a way and I'm not that vulnerable with you, then, then I'm going to bail and I'm going to jump into another relationship and I'm move on to another group, another this, another that, or the other. So we have this transactional relationship. I'm going to be with you as long as you're making me feel better about myself. I'm going to be with you as long as you don't press me about what I'm really thinking, about what I'm really feeling. If you don't really kind of press into my vulnerability, I'll be with you. But if you try to go too deep with me, I'm out. I'm going to bail. Why is that? It's because you're afraid. 
Why is that? It's because your life, the fallout of sin, is wreaking havoc on your relationships with other people. We're alienated from God. We're alienated from our true selves. And sin alienates us from one another. So we don't trust each other. We don't love one another. We're suspicious of each other. It's all part of the fallout of sin. But then there's one other dynamic that's emphasized in this passage. Not only are we alienated from God and ourselves and from each other, we are alienated from our home. If you remember when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, we said that God was forming a home to host those that he loves. He was setting up creation so that it might be filled and flourish with life and activity. He was, host, he was creating a home to host those that he loves. And the world was set up to be hospitable to God's creatures, to God's people. But now, as a result of sin, you find the world is not as hospitable as it once was. We've been alienated from our home, so to speak. You see this in a few different ways as you move down the passage. If you look at verse 14 through 19, you'll see this coming out in a few ways. You begin to see how we are alienated from our home when, when the Lord addresses the, the woman and he tells the woman, Look, you remember how I told you I wanted you to be fruitful and multiply? I wanted you to procreate and have babies. Well, now, as you do that, it's going to be painful. It's going to hurt, and it's actually going to be dangerous. Part of the fallout of sin is child labor. Giving birth is not going to be a smooth process. I have a wife who's given birth to three kids. I can attest. It, well, from the outside, it doesn't look very easy. It looks hard. It hurts, apparently. When I tell her, I said, you know, I had my appendix out. Does that count? She's like, no, that doesn't count. You can't put that out there. And so she, the childbearing, for example, is, is now going to be a painful, and in most parts of the world, outside of the Western world, it's, it's a dangerous. Not a, a lot of moms do not even survive the act of giving birth. It's a painful and a dangerous process. Why? Because we're alienated from our home. The world is not as hospitable as it once was. But then you go on into the passage, and you see the fact that work, when he addresses man in verse 17, he says, look, you know how I told you to go out and subdue the earth and exercise dominion? I want you to take the raw materials of the created order and rearrange them so that life can flourish on earth. And he say, now when you go to do that, it's going to be hard. Now as you do that, sweat's going to fall from your brow. Now that you're, as you do that, it's going to be difficult for, the, for you to reap the bread the earth is going to provide. Work now is going to be laborious. It's going to be hard. You might consider your experience with work. It's going to be stressful. It's going to be taxing. It's going to be draining. Not all work that we're doing right now feels very fulfilling. Why is that? It's because we're working in a world that isn't hospitable to that which God created us for. We are alienated from our home. But then you go one step further. You get down to the end of verse 19, and what does God say to Adam? He says, you know, you remember the dust that I took from the ground in chapter 2, and I formed it, and I breathed life into it, making you a living creature. Well, that dust that you come from, you're going to return to that dust. In other words, you're now going to die. And so death becomes the biggest indicator that this world is not hospitable, that we've been alienated from our home, that things are not right, because in this world, death occurs. Death happens all the time to everyone. It's batting a thousand in the world that is. If you are born, you will die. And so you have this, this consequence, this fallout of sin, where the world is no longer hospitable to us. That death now is to be experienced by us. Now, we live in a culture that talks about death in some odd ways. There's those who talk about death and trying to counsel one another to just accept death as a natural process of life. And you can kind of understand where they're coming from when they say that, but let me kind of throw this out there. If, if the scriptures is providing you with your worldview, and if you are in relationship with the God who created life, then you must not ever accept death as a natural occurrence or death as just a natural process. Instead, you are to view death as an enemy. The way the Bible talks about death is anti-God. Death is everything that God is not for. Death is the enemy of our lives. It is death is part of what Jesus came to defeat and to conquer. 
So we don't ever want to accept death or any narrative about death that says, well, it's natural, it's expected, it's, it's something that just happens in the world. No, as followers of Jesus who know the Creator God, we are to say death forever and always is an enemy. Now, when you become a Christian, it's unique that death ceases to become an enemy and it actually becomes a servant so that when you die, it brings you into the presence of Christ. It brings you into your communion with God in, a, in some kind of way. I've never done it, so I can't explain it to you, but there's something that happens so that as a Christian, death is our servant, but before that, death is our enemy. And so as followers of Jesus, knowing this God, we never want to talk about death as a natural occurrence. We never want to make friends with death. We always want to rage against the dying of the light in this world. We want to champion life all across the board. We want to champion life and be anti-death in every aspect of our experience in this world as long as we are alive. So you have death here brought in at the end, indicating that we've been alienated from our home. Now, so you have this, this pervasive alienation that's being described here from God, from ourselves, from each other, and from our home. And, and understand that if you're going to be uh, balanced in your view about life in this world, you need to understand how sin affects alienation in all of these forms and in all of these fronts. What we are tempted to do at times is to not view all of these things in, in our worldview or to hold all of these forms of alienation in our lives. And as a result, we get a little twisted about what the remedy to this alienation might be. For example, if you're sitting down with somebody over coffee and they ask you, hey, what's wrong with the world? What's the biggest problem in the world? And if you summarize the problems in the world by simply saying, well, it's a spiritual problem. It's the fact that we've been alienated from God then what's going to be the solution? Well, you're going to encourage them. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're going to encourage them to say, well, okay, if it's a spiritual problem, then it must be a spiritual solution. So you're going to encourage them to meditate, to pray, to get religious, to join a church, to go to a temple, to do some, some form of spirituality. If our problem is inherently spiritual, then the remedy must be inherently spiritual as well. And what happens a lot of times is we miscommunicate the reality of what God is going after in the gospel when we when we talk that way because we give the impression that he's concerned about spirituality but he's not concerned about physicality. And so you get this conflict in the church sometimes where we're saying, okay, let's just tell people that Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, but as we're doing that, we're going to ignore the physical needs that they are a part of because those needs aren't very important. God's not as concerned about physicality as he is spirituality. But if you trace this all the way down and you say, and you hold all these things together, you're going to understand that our alienation takes physical forms and has a physical effect. And we as followers of Jesus need to go about combating that and applying the remedy of the gospel to that as well. But then you go one step further. You'll say, if in that conversation you say, well, uh, the problem with humanity is that we're alienated from ourselves. And you might describe our condition in terms of psychology. Well, if you describe the biggest problem with humanity in the world in those terms, then what's the remedy? The remedy is going to be psychology. Go find a counselor. Let somebody do some mental judo on you to get you thinking right about who you are, and, and that becomes the remedy. Or, or you start saying, well, if the problem is psychological on that front, that we're alienated from ourselves, we don't think highly of ourselves, we're plagued with guilt and shame and fear, then what's the answer? The answer is self-esteem. And you buy into a remedy that says, well, if you just promote healthy self-esteem to anyone and everyone, if you affirm everything about everyone, then you will elevate their self-esteem and that'll be their remedy. That will be their salvation. And this is happening on a cultural level. This is why Little League sports like to give everybody trophies. Yeah, participation trophies are kind of the fruit of that philosophy. The self-esteem is the remedy to uh, our psychological ills and our psychological effects, the fact that we are alienated from our created selves. But then you might go one step further and say, well, if the problem is that we are alienated from each other, that people just can't get along, then what's the solution on that front? Well, let's say, well, racism is an example of this type of alienation, isn't it? Racism, sexism, any, basically any ism you can think of is the result of this type of alienation. So what's the remedy? Well, the remedy then becomes social justice. The remedy becomes social activism. It becomes political advocacy. It becomes causal. And you start promoting causes as the end-all, be-all, the fix-up for everything. And you go after that to the exclusion of all the other issues that 
affect life in a fallen world, our spirituality, our psychology, our social effects, and then maybe even our physical dynamics. So if you isolate any, any of these forms of alienation from the others, you're going to apply a remedy that on some level will eventually betray the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is the gospel is big enough, broad enough in scope, and powerful enough in intent is that it can cover all of these forms of alienation with the same story, the same Savior, the same process. It's a beautiful, powerful gospel that we'll get into here in a moment. But then there are those who might say, well, it might not be the, the social dynamic. They'll say, well, the problem is the physical alienation, the, the fact that we're alienated from our home. So what's the remedy on that front? Well, then let's put all of our eggs in the technological basket. Let's put all of our eggs in the medical development basket. Let's put all of our money, all of our mental energies into medicine and technology because medicine and technology are physical remedies to our physical problem. There's a movement I actually read about, and you're probably familiar with it, down in the Silicon Valley. Uh, it's called transhumanism. And this is actually the idea that's driving transhumanism. They see all of our problems are physical, so all of our remedies can be physical. And the, the idea is that evolution has gotten humanity this far in the story, but if we're going to take one leap, if we're going to become transhuman, perhaps unlock the key to immortality, then what needs to happen is technology. What needs to happen is medical advancement. What needs to happen is we discover how to manipulate DNA and to do all these types of things to remedy our problem with death and our problem with sickness and a problem with all sorts of other physical factors. And so transhumanism would then come up and kind of fill that void, saying, if we ever isolate one of these forms of alienation from the others, we're going to look to a remedy that cannot adequately address the complexity of the fallout of sin. Sin is pervasive in its effects. It affects us spiritually, personally, socially, and physically. And we need a story, we need a remedy that can powerfully interact with all of those fronts simultaneously. But before we get to that remedy, notice also, you have this pervasive alienation that's being described in Genesis chapter 3. But what's interesting is that in the void of alienation, in the void, in the gap between that which is alienated, what always seems to pop up and fester in the void of our alienation is animosity. Where there is alienation, animosity will inevitably pop up. It will fill the void. You notice this with how Adam responds to God when God comes looking for him. If you look at verse 12, notice what's, what goes down there. Verse 12, right after God shows up and he begins to ask a series of questions of Adam, trying to bring him to a point of confession. But instead of confessing and disclosing what just went down in an honest, humble way, this is what he says in verse 12. In the void of his alienation comes animosity. He says, who told you that you were naked? I'm sorry, that's God. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Do you hear the animosity swelling up within him? He blames God for what just went down. He's saying, look, it's, it's not really on me. It's on the woman that, by the way, you gave me to be a blessing, to be a partner in this thing. But she gave me this fruit. So I thought it was okay. She came from you. I figured she would be for me in every situation. And so it's really your fault that this went down. Animosity is filling the void of his alienation. But then you go one step further. Not only do you begin to see that happen here with Adam's relationship with God, later on when God is describing the fallout of sin, when you jump down to verse 16, for example, he begins to describe how animosity is going to fill the void of alienation that Adam and Eve will now have with each other, that man and woman will now have with each other. What's going to fill the void of our alienation from each other? Well, it's animosity. Look at verse 16. At the end of verse 16, God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule for you. Now, you might read that at first glance and think, well, what's wrong with desiring a husband? Is there anything wrong with a woman desiring a husband, someone to share life with, an intimate companion to journey through life with? No, there's no, nothing wrong with that desire. But to understand what is meant by the word desire in this passage, you have to consider the word that is being used and how it is used elsewhere. And when you turn one chapter later into your Bible, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, that word desire, the same word, pops up 
But notice what it says. It's talking to Cain, about Cain, uh, the first murderer in the Bible. And a warning is be, being issued to Cain saying, look, sin's desire is for you. And the idea is that sin desired Cain in the sense that sin wanted to dominate Cain. Sin wanted to control Cain. Sin wanted to uh, manipulate Cain. This is essentially the, what is being described in chapter 3, verse 16. When he says to, the, to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, he's saying, look, you're going to want to dominate him. You're going to want to control him. You're going to want to manipulate him. You're going to want to make him do things that you want to do, and you're going to figure out ways to get him to do whatever it is you want him to do. Your desire in that sense is going to be for him. But on the flip side, what's going down? She's going to desire her husband, and then he's going to rule over her. So he is going to dominate her. He is going to be uh, domineering in the relationship as well. So what is happening is you get a, get a conflict. Animosity is rising between the genders. As the woman is going to try to dominate the man, the man is going to try to rule the woman. And a conflict, a clash between the genders is created as a result of the fallout of sin. Because we are alienated from one another, animosity will inevitably fill the gap. It will fill the void animosity between us and our God, animosity with ourselves so that we hate ourselves so often, animosity between each other so that we want to rule and dominate and manipulate and use each other, animosity even with the created order so that creation fights back when we try to bring food and provision from creation. It, it fights back in various ways. Animosity fills the void of our alienation. The fallout of sin is intense. The fallout of sin is a huge, huge problem. And what's interesting is when you consider Genesis chapter 3, this fallout is happening because a bomb was dropped earlier in the chapter. A bomb was dropped when the serpent slithered in and lied and deceived Eve and and Adam abdicated his responsibility in that moment and took the fruit as well and together the fall happened because of their sin. And, and the serpent was the one kind of manipulating the whole process, right? He was the one seeking to profit from their sin, from their disobedience. He was the one applauding every step of the way. Essentially what's happening in alienation and animosity is that the devil is antagonizing it. Our spiritual opposer, our spiritual opposition revels in our alienation. He revels in our animosity. He loves the fact that we are separated from God and that we are hostile to God in our hearts. He loves the fact that we are alienated from ourselves and we are hostile to ourselves in a myriad of ways. He loves the fact that we are alienated from one another so that we are hostile to each other in words and deeds and emotions and all types of ways. He loves the fact that the world isn't hospitable to us. He revels in the fact that death is now reality for us as fallen creatures. It's part of the fallout of sin. You might compare the devil to Dana White. If you've heard that name, Dana White is the founder of, the, of, of UFC, of Ultimate Fighting uh, Champion, the Ultimate Fighting Championship, whatever. Uh, he, he's the one who promotes that battle. He's the one who uh, gets fighters to fight each other. He's the one who sets fights up in different places. He's promoting it. He's advocating it. He's, in a sense, antagonizing it. He never steps into the ring and fights anyone. Instead, he steps out of the ring, and when he gets two fighters into the octagon, and they start hitting each other and beating each other senseless, he's profiting. He's benefiting. He's promoting this, and he's going to profit from it. There's a sense in which the devil is a cosmic promoter of our conflicts. There's a sense in which he wants to kind of tease the fact that we are alienated in a pervasive sense. He wants to tease out the perverse forms of animosity that exist within the human condition, let conflict happen, and meanwhile he's going to stand on the outside cheering it on and profiting from it every time it manifests itself in our lives. He's like Dana White, or if that doesn't tickle your fancy, you might say Don King back in the day. If you're more of a boxing guy, Don King did the same thing for boxing back in the day. and He was promoting these conflicts, promoting this, these fights in order to profit from it. And there's a sense in which the devil is doing the exact same thing right now. 
And so the question becomes, if, if that is true, if that's going down, if we are alienated and if animosity characterizes all of our relationships, then, and if the devil is kind of antagonizing it all along the way, then what is the remedy? What is the solution? You know, at first glance, you read these, this passage and you might walk away depressed. Everything I've said so far is pretty negative, right? Everything I've said so far is pretty depressing. It's discouraging. It's, you, it feels deflating to hear this type of talk and to hear this type of message. But that's only true if you and I are to end the conversation right now. But if we come back to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 21, you're going to hear hope. In the midst of the fallout of sin, God provides a promise. God provides a promise for a remedy that will be broad enough in scope to cover all the forms of our alienation. He's going to provide a remedy that will be deep enough in power and strength and in might that it can account for all the alienation in our lives and for all the animosity in our lives. This remedy is coming, and and from our perspective, this remedy has already come. So not only do you see the fallout of sin described in this passage, you hear the first gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you look real closely for, with me at this, at this verse, here is where God is laying out the consequences. And in so doing, he drops the seed of the gospel. He gives hope in the midst of all of this fallout, in the midst of all of this tragedy, in the midst of all that's just been described and will continue to be described. He makes this promise. He says in verse 15, talking to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I'm sorry, talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you begin to hear the first gospel there as God is making a promise. He's saying, look, I'm promising that one day there's going to come a champion of peace. There is coming one who's going to defeat the antagonist, who's going to defeat the serpent, who's reveling in our alienation and instigating our animosity. He's going to come and set everything right by defeating this one, a champion of peace, so to speak. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, I'm going to put enmity between your offspring, referring to the serpent, and her offspring. And each time that word offspring is translated, it's in the plural form saying all of the woman's descendants are going to be in conflict with all of the descendants of the serpent, descendants of Satan in this world. Now, I know that sounds strange. I don't think literally. Does that mean all the, this, this passage is speaking about why uh, so many people are afraid of snakes and, and that's where the enmity is found? No, if you locate it there, you're going to misread the passage. Uh, this, this passage isn't talking about the offspring of the serpent being little serpents that are running around the world and doing what it's doing bad things to people. That's not what's going down. What's happening here is offspring. It's the offspring of the spiritual opposer. That is those who will follow, follow the lineage of the serpent in saying, God, you are not good. In saying, God, you do not want what's best for me. In saying, God, I would rather captain my own ship and steer my own life apart from you, not with you. That's the the offspring of the serpent. That's the philosophy of the serpent that will be embodied by many, many, many people. I know this because Jesus would say as much in the gospel. When he's talking to the Pharisees, what does he accuse them of being? He says, I want you to know that you are, in this moment, you are acting like your father, the devil. He's saying you guys are his offspring. Why is that? Well, because they don't trust in God's goodness. They don't trust in God's grace. Their righteousness is entirely located within them. They're not looking outside of them for righteousness. They're not looking outside of themselves for forgiveness. They're not looking outside of themselves for healing and reconciliation, not only with God, but with all of humanity as well. So he says, look, you are like your father, the devil. You don't trust God. You don't believe he's good. You're not resting in grace. You haven't received the Messiah. In fact, you're rejecting him. That he hits them hard in saying that. that. That's the offspring language that's being happened, that's being um, teased out in verse 15. But then it also talks about the, wom- the woman's offspring. In the midst of all of this, there will be a lineage, there will be a line of people who will trust in God's goodness. A line of people who will believe that God wants what's best for them, will believe that God will set things right. You see this in Genesis chapter 4. That's the first manifestation of this conflict. You have two brothers, Cain and Abel. 
Cain is, you can describe Cain as being of the offspring of the serpent because he does not trust in God's goodness. So he brings an offering to God that isn't accepted by God because it's not according to his best. It's not according to what God deserves as our creator and as our good heavenly father. But Abel, on the other hand, did. Abel offered up a good sacrifice to God, one that took from his best to bring this to the Father. Cain then became jealous of Abel because, the father, because God accepted his sacrifice. And in his jealousy, in his envy, what happened? Enmity, animosity. He killed his brother. And the first murder happens in Genesis chapter 4 where Cain kills Abel. You have this, this animosity that is swelling up in the void of alienation in his life. But then you trace that lineage all down through the Old Testament and you always see there's a remnant of people who trust in the goodness of God, who trust in the grace of God, all the way leading up to the moment when the champion of peace will come. And so you find again in verse 15 an interesting shift. Offspring is plural. Offspring is plural, both of those. But then all of a sudden the writer gets singular. And he focuses on one particular offspring, one particular descendant of the woman. And it is this champion of peace who will come from the woman in this moment, saying, this this singular guy, this singular he is going to come, and he's going to come from you, the woman. Now, what's interesting about that is in a patriarchal society, anytime you traced a lineage and heritage, you always traced it back to the man, the patriarch. But here you have a lineage, a heritage being traced back to who? Being traced back to the matriarch, Eve, the mother of all living. You might think, well, why did his, the lineage get traced back to the woman? Well, you think about the storyline of the gospel and you take advantage of your position in the world right now. The fact that you were alive this side of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. You were alive in this moment on this side of the, of the fulfillment of the scriptures so that we have all this information about God's plans and God's purposes and God's grace and God's goodness. So that you and I can hear that verse and think about it in light of this one who was born of a woman, this one who was born of a virgin, this one whose lineage could not be traced back to a biological male, a lineage who could only be traced back to the virgin named Mary. And if you think that's a leap, uh, let me encourage you to consider Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, a pro- verse 14, a, a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah referring to this champion of peace who would come. Verse 14, behold the virgin, that is this woman who's, who's never been with a man. This virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. That is God who walks among us the way the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is the one who is coming, this champion of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, same thing. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Champion of, champion of Peace, who's coming into the world. Verse 7, of the increase of his government, that is his kingdom, and of his peace there will be no end. There will be no king like this one. His government will last forever on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then that last phrase there, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is promising a champion of peace. And what's interesting about that last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, another way of rendering that is that is the passion of the God of war. It's a violent description. When you hear the Lord of hosts, you don't think peace, you think war. You think about a God who's going to fight for his people. A God who's going to defend his people. A God who's going to redeem his people through, it seems, some form of violence. So if that is true, then that helps us make sense of the rest of verse 15. This one who's going to come from the woman, the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise his head. That there's going to be a violent exchange between him and the serpent, between him and the adversary. And you think about the cross, you think about how this one who is coming... It says in Genesis 3.15, he's going to be wounded. He's going to be wounded as the serpent bruises his heel. In other words, he's going to be violently acted upon. 
You see, the Lord of hosts does a unique thing in the person of Jesus. When he steps into the world, he does not come to the world to execute violence upon fallen humanity. What he does is he steps into the world and he takes, he is acted upon violently. He doesn't do violence, he receives violence. This is the champion of peace. Our reconciliation, our peace comes through violence, but it is a violence that God himself doesn't levy on us. It is violence that God himself took for us. When he went to the cross, he was wounded. He was crucified. He was crushed and, or bruised, so to speak. The word bruised in Genesis 3.15 can also be translated crushed. Jesus was crushed on the cross. And as he did so, no doubt the serpent thought that he had won. No doubt the enemy thought he had prevailed upon this champion of peace, thinking, well, you're dead now. You are about, you're in a tomb. That's what I'm about in this world. I perpetuate death. I champion death. I love alienation and animosity. And now you are dead. I win. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. Perhaps you have. It's the the Matrix trilogy. Uh, If you haven't seen it, it's been out long enough. You should have seen it by now. I'm going to spoil it for you. Uh, The third trilogy in the Matrix movies, you have this hero named Neo. And you have an antagonist named Agent Smith. And the two are in conflict. The two are fighting. and And the whole series moves to this epic battle between Neo and Agent Smith. But what's interesting about the battle and how it goes down is that there comes a moment where Neo realizes how he's going to beat Agent Smith. And he beats Agent Smith in a surprising way. There's a moment where Smith punches Neo, and it's a real world, so his hand actually goes into his chest and gets stuck there. And then it turns black. You begin to see everything going black, and this black goo starts covering Neo. And essentially, he takes Agent Smith into himself. And after a few moments, uh, Neo then gives the appearance of Agent Smith. He looks like Agent Smith. And Agent Smith thinks that he has prevailed over Neo. Neo's let him in in that kind of way. And he even asks, is it, is it over? Have I won? But then in the very next moment, light begins to shine. Light begins to break through Agent Neo, the facade of Agent Smith in that moment. And as this light began to penetrate and to break through his flesh, eventually Neo burst out of Agent Smith, disintegrating him and ultimately defeating him. See, he gave him the impression that he was going to win, but ultimately he was working out a different plan. He was going to conquer him subversively. So he let him in. He let him think he was going to prevail. And then boom, he he busted out. What do you think the serpent was thinking when Jesus was lying as a corpse in the tomb. Do you think there's a thought that the devil may have had that he prevailed? That he's now defeated this champion of peace? Do you think there's a sense in which Jesus gave the serpent the impression that he was going to prevail over him because he is now crucified on the cross? Whether you think that or not, the disciples certainly did. The disciples thought, well, the Messiah is dead. There's no hope for us now. And then what happens three days later? Light begins to exit the tomb. Life steps out of the tomb and Jesus bursts forth. And when he steps out of the tomb, what is happening? He's crushing the head of the serpent. Ultimately, he's winning the battle. Ultimately, he's winning the war. The champion of peace is bringing out our salvation, bringing out our reconciliation, not through violence that he perpetrates, but violence that he took into himself when he died on the cross and later rose from the grave. If you ever saw the movie, uh, the Passion movie, Mel Gibson's version of the Passion narrative, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, There's an opening scene where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he stomps on the head of a serpent. He stomps on the head of the snake. You might have thought when you're reading that or when you're watching that, uh, I've read the story in the Gospels and that didn't happen. Where did that come from? Well, it comes from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It comes from the fact that through his life and his death and his resurrection, the champion of peace crushes the head of the serpent. He defeats Satan. He removes the antagonist from having a definitive effect on our lives. And as after beating the serpent, he now promotes and provides a pervasive reconciliation. 
He goes to work in setting everything right in our lives, starting first with our hearts. You check it, Colossians chapter 1, describing this dynamic. For in him, that is Jesus, for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, pervasive reconciliation. Everything's going to be made right in and through Jesus, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. In Christ, God provides a pervasive reconciliation. What does this mean for you except that you, in Christ, are now reconciled to God? What that means for you is that in Christ, your sins are forgiven. What that means for you is that in Christ, you don't have to hide from God anymore. You don't have to be hostile to God anymore, thinking he's not trustworthy or kind or that he wants what's best for you. You can now press into that reality because of what Jesus has done for you in the gospel. In Christ, we are reconciled to God. We don't have to hide anymore. Our sins are forgiven forever and always. In Christ, we are given a new self. So that elsewhere in the New Testament, we are, so, we are told that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He has a new self, a new identity. You can now become your true self in Christ. You don't have to live your life plagued by guilt, fear, and shame. You don't have to give weight to your insecurities and your sense of inadequacy. No, you step into Christ and you find all your value. You find all your contentment. You find all of your peace, all of your purpose in Christ. You were given a new self. In Christ, together, we form a new humanity. Our pervasive reconciliation means that when we step into Christ, we step into Christ together, forming a new humanity. So that now we have an opportunity in the church to give a picture to the watching world of what God intended for humanity to be like. That our relationships are to be characterized by forgiveness, love, grace, compassion, service, deference. Our relationships are not to be characterized by alienation and animosity. No, there should be harmony amongst us in Christ as we form a new humanity. And this new humanity shows up in the world primarily through the church. This is why we want the church to be a multi-ethnic community of faith. One family comprised of different races. One family championing the dignity of both sexes. One family championing all that is value about what it means to be a human being in Christ in the world that is. In Christ, together, we form a new humanity. We partner together now in the purposes of God, the way Adam and Eve were supposed to partner together in the Garden of Eden. They were to represent God. They were to reflect his image. They were to create flourishing for all of life there. Now you and I have the privilege and the opportunity of being about that business once again. Because now we know the remedy to what ails the human condition. We know that the remedy can't be isolated to psychology. It can't be located in self-esteem. It cannot be entirely uh, dealt with on a picket line. The remedy to the fallen human condition is found in Christ. The gospel has the power to run the gamut and remedy all the forms of alienation in our lives. And yes, that means the physical form. So that in Christ, not only do we form a new humanity, but in Christ we are getting a new home. In Christ, we're realizing that this world that we are in right now isn't for us. You're going to discover the deeper you press into your relationship with Christ, you're going to discover over time how out of step you are with so much that is in the world around you. You're not going to feel like you have a place in this world the deeper you go into Christ. Back in college, I was invited to a Screamo concert. And I've never felt more out of place. Everybody was painted but me. Everybody's jeans were a lot tighter than mine. It, it wasn't a very comfortable environment for me to be in. I stood out. That place wasn't for me. Well, there's a sense as you press into Christ and all of this, this reconciliation and this peace begins to characterize everything about you, you're going to find yourself not at home in the world as it is now. And that reality has nothing to do with your style of clothing. It has nothing to do with your style of music. That reality has everything to do with your passions, your values, your priorities. It has everything to do with the fact that you are a person of peace in the midst of a world full of conflict. You are a person of reconciliation in the midst of a world that is characterized by alienation. And so as you press into Christ, everything begins to change. Everything begins to change. 
and you discover that the world as it is now, it's not your home. So you turn your attention to the world that is to come and you rest in the fact that in Christ you're going to be given a new home. Revelation chapter 21 would describe this. It's probably one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Revelation 21, listen to these words of this home that is coming our way because of Jesus. The writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bridegroom adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the home that's coming to us in Christ. And it says in verse 4 that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, that is the world as it is now, has passed away. It has given way to the world that is to come. Pervasive reconciliation. Reconciled to God, to our true selves, to one another. And ultimately being reconciled to a new home, a hospitable world where all will be made well. A guy by the name of Randy Alcorn would describe this well in his book titled Heaven. He says one of the greatest things about heaven is that we'll no longer have, we'll no longer have to battle our desires. They'll always be pure, attending to their proper objects. We'll enjoy food without gluttony and eating disorders. I love that. We'll express admiration and affection without lust, fornication, or betrayal. Those things simply won't exist. All will be made well. This is why C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia of, of one of his characters, Lucy, saying, you know, when I got to Narnia, I've got the feeling that I've got to the country where everything is allowed. Everything is okay. Everything is permissible. Everything is right. This makes what Augustine said back in the fourth century make a little bit more sense. There was a time where Augustine was thinking about grace and he told the Christian, hey, love God and do what you want. It's easier said than done in the world that is now. But in the world that is to come, that will become a reality. We will love God and do what we want. We will enjoy reconciliation and peace with Christ forever and always. That's where we're going. That's the climax of our reconciliation in Christ. Enjoying God forever. Now you may be wondering, well, how do we... What does that mean? How, do I, how am I supposed to respond to this? Like, perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a Christian. And you wonder, well, how do I get in on that reconciliation? How does that peace begin to mark my life? How can alienation and animosity be replaced with reconciliation and peace? And this is where I would call you back to Genesis chapter 3. And I would encourage you to hear the question that the Lord God asked Adam right off the bat. The first question God asked Adam, where are you? And understand that when God asked him that question, it wasn't because he was ignorant of Adam's location. That question was designed not to condemn Adam. That question was designed to solicit confession from Adam. Where are you? Stop hiding in the darkness. Step out into the light. Come back to me. And that is the same question God is asking each and every one of us tonight. Where are you? Are you hiding from this God in some discernible way in your life? First John would tell us, if anyone claims to have fellowship with God yet walks in darkness, he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. In order to fellowship with God, you cannot walk in darkness. You have to step out into the light. What does that mean? You become an honest human being. You confess your sins to your God. You confess what's real about you. You confess what's real about your relationships with other people. You become an honest, an honest, authentic human being who steps out into the light saying, God, here I am. Here's all my thoughts. Here's all my problems. Here's all my struggles. Here's all my inadequacies, my fears, my shame, my guilt. Bring that into the light and allow the presence of God to bring healing to your soul. So how do you respond to this message? Well, you you prayerfully answer God's question, where, where are you? And if you're not a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to stop hiding. Step out into the light. 
step into Christ, experience reconciliation and peace. If you are a follower of Christ, let me encourage you, if there's any area in your life that you are still tempted to hide from God or from yourself or from other people, bring it into the light. We want to live an honest, authentic, reconciled, and peaceful life with God, with ourselves, and with each other in this world as we anticipate the world that is to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we prayerfully consider what you're doing in our hearts in this very moment. I pray, God, that you would shine light into our souls and that you would help us to be honest with you about anything in our hearts, anything in our minds. Give us grace to humbly recognize that you are fully aware of all of those things anyways. And so your question to us is to bring those willingly and willfully to you. And I pray that by your grace, that would occur over these next few moments. I pray that each and every one of us would step out into the light in various ways, that we would stop hiding, and that we would press into living an honest, authentic life, walking with you through the world that is together. God, we thank you for reconciliation. We thank you for peace. We thank you for what you've promised to us in Jesus, and, and I pray that you would help us to live in light of it more and more each and every day. In Jesus' name.